Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to author Heather Lendy about her new book of Bears and Ballots, an Alaskan Adventure in Small Town Politics. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Thank you. Uh, it's really nice to be here. It's nice to have you on. Um, I wonder if we could start by having you tell us about yourself. Well, um, I live in Haynes, Alaska, a very small town that's on the inside passage up, um, for those of you who are familiar with the cruise ship routes, up by, uh, between Juneau and Skagway. I'm 61 years old. I have five children and 11 grandchildren. Um, my husband and I own a lumberyard and a hardware store in Haines. I write obituaries for the Chilkat Valley News, uh, our local weekly paper, which I've done for the last 20 years or so. And I've written four books. Uh, the first one, If You Lived Here, I'd Know Your Name. And the second one was Take Good Care of the Garden and the Dogs. The third one is about lessons I've learned writing obituaries. It's called Find the Good. And the most recent one is of Bears and Ballots, which is an Alaskan adventure in small town politics and chronicles my three-year term on the Haynesboro Assembly from 2016 to 2019. Um, what else might you want? I don't know. We, my life is kind of an open book, so <laughs> I, uh, I like to ride bikes. I have golden retrievers. I, um, I'm pretty Alaskan these days. And so that leads to the next question, which is what inspired you to write this book? Well, um, I don't know. You know, it was a very uh, difficult time for me to be on uh, in local politics. So I guess the real answer is what what on earth was I thinking when I went into local politics and why? Um, Haynes is a very um, engaged, small community. It's about 2,500 of us and we're, we're pretty isolated. We're 40 miles from the Canadian border, uh, and you can drive to Whitehorse Yukon Territory through one of the largest contiguous wilderness areas in the world, so that takes a while, or you can uh, take a ferry or a small plane from Juneau to get here, and um, we care a lot about our politics, and I'd, I've lived here for some 35, 36 years, and very involved in the community on many levels, and I thought, well, I'm going to run for, for office. And it was, of course, the same year that Hillary Clinton was running. And I, I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll join all the, the women <laughs> who are celebrating. And we know how that went. Um, and I honestly didn't think I was going to write about my term on the assembly because it was a very difficult time for me in many ways, uh, rewarding, inspiring, and certainly challenging. Um, but I'm a writer and that's what I do. And I tell stories particularly about this place. And this seemed like a story that was worth telling and uh, would resonate with the rest of the country and certainly people who are familiar with my books. And um, uh, I'm glad I wrote it now. And I, um, I think especially going forward, maybe it'll help with what's happening to, to the whole country now in terms of how um, divided and active and engaged we are. The book is a really personal story. It really illustrates how the personal is political. And I was wondering if you could tell us how you ended up in Alaska. You just sort of briefly say in the book, you were 24 and you had a new baby and you and your husband sort of drove there. And I was like, wait, what? Like, 
How do you just, <laughs> I think there's more to it. <laughs> there's, you know, there's not much when you're just graduating from college and want to go off on life. You know, sometimes you just do these things that end up uh, changing everything. Um, it, it, my husband and I met in college at uh, Middlebury College in Vermont, and we got married shortly after um, I graduated. And that, and then um, he had studied forestry, had a master's degree in forestry, and wanted to go where the big trees were. So we bought a pickup truck and drove across the country and ended up in Alaska. And um, basically, we've been here ever since. <laughs> He just it, drove until he liked the size of the trees? Well, uh, actually, no, we came through Haynes. We took, you know, you can drive, you get to to Bellingham, you take a ferry up. Uh, we actually took a ferry from Prince Rupert up the Inside Passage. We ended up in Haynes. By then it was September, and uh, the town here was suffering from uh, a, a kind of a big economic downturn. The sawmill had just closed, and the timber industry in southeast Alaska was uh, on the on the wane to say the least. And so we kept going and went to Anchorage and spent about a year and a half there. I worked as a waitress, he worked in a small sawmill and then the, the mill in Haynes reopened and he was offered a job here and we came down here um, and f- fell in love with the community and the, and the environment and everything about it. And um, then the sawmill went broke again and pretty much that was the end of things and we uh, <laughs> we decided to stay and take over a, a local a regular old retail lumberyard and hardware store, much to our parents' horror and everybody's um, better judgment that we shouldn't do such a thing because we didn't really know anything about it. And luckily, um, I wasn't very involved. My husband is smarter than I am when it comes to business. And uh, so that's that's kind of the, the story. I, I didn't. I don't think I set out to just live here forever, but um, once I got to Haynes, it, it you know it, it just became my place, and it and it is my place and my home. And somewhere you recruited your sister to move there too. <laughs> um, I didn't actually recruit her. She came up with my parents to to visit when uh, she was shortly out of college, and she fell in love with a a local man here and ended up staying and getting married and, and living here as well. And I have a, a third sister who still uh, lives back east in New York where I grew up. Well, give her time. She'll... <laughs> I don't think so. She, no. thinks, she thinks this is really the sticks. <laughs> but you do have the stories of these connections. Your daughter's roommate was visiting and the neighbor guy fell in love with her. And uh, Yes, I love that story. I don't know if that's in the book or not, but I guess it might be. It's Yeah, yeah a little um, bit. There's, there's a lot of things like that that happen. That's why I, I love the town that I live in. I mean, I love Haynes because of that. It's not really your stereotypical small town in terms of what you think of as an isolated small town where everybody's kind of related to each other and has been there forever. There's a lot of coming and going. Uh, you know, people try Alaska and they leave or people like us when we were young show up and stay um, and of course, there are multi-generational families, particularly Alaska Native families who've been here for thousands of years. But in, in general, um, there's a lot of uh, cross-pollination that goes on. And, and that story, my daughter, uh, Sarah, was uh, attending um, Washington State University and, and was a rower there. And when she got married, um, her one of her roommates came up, of course, for the wedding and uh, met a local 
fishermen. <laughs> and uh, they fell in love and they're married now and live here and have three children. Um, another funny story like that is another wedding story where um, my daughter, JJ, at, oh no, Eliza, at Eliza's wedding, I have four daughters and one son. At Eliza's wedding, um, uh, a friend of a friend drove a van that was belonged to one of the local tour companies to help get her uh, her husband's family back to the ferry from all the you know bed and breakfasts and places where they were staying. And um, the driver of the van ended up falling in love with the groom's sister, and so they are now married and live in Juno, and they're expecting their first child. So there's all kinds of things like that that happen. And while these stories might sound anecdotal to listeners who haven't read the book, they really are sort of the spine of the book. Because when you're doing this work on the town council, you're aware that the people who are bringing proposals and have concerns are the neighbor, are the guy who paves the road that your grandkids live on. One person made a horrible comment when something didn't go his way that, you know, this kid hit someone's kids. It could be your grandkids. And, you know, um, all of these personal relationships are intricately woven in in a in a town like this, even though there's a great deal of um, autonomy and personal privacy. There's also an interrelatedness that brings you together, not just for politics, but for the stuff of your lives. Oh, absolutely. And I found for me, the the greatest conflict of interest was friends, you know, on a, on a national level, um, or, or I should say relationships, but you know, it's, it's money, it's power, it's um, different, um, uh, you know, uh, lobbyists or whatever it is. In, in a small town, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I wished I could have declared a conflict of interest and not been able to rule on something because it was, you know, someone who is as close to me as family, but they aren't. And someone who I won't gain anything financially or personally from this decision, but it'll break my heart if I I have to say they're wrong or, um, you know, it, it, that was the, I think that I've learned, if I've learned anything from writing obituaries, it's that you know, the world revolves around relationships. That's the whole thing. And, and, and that's what makes the town I live in and, and love so much is all these relationships. At the same time, for me, just for my personality, I just had a terrible time trying to separate those uh, relationships and my care for my neighbors and friends and even people that I might disagree with all the time. I, I appreciate their character, their way of being, and that they live in the same town I live in. So I, I that was the greatest struggle for me uh, um, on, on the assembly, on the, in the local government was uh, navigating those relationships and knowing that decisions that I would make could break people's hearts. And before you ran for this office, you had been on some local boards, you've been active with hospice and some of the other boards. And my impression from reading this is that's kind of part of being a good citizen of the town. At some point, people will serve on this committee or that, or that, um, that board. And you said one of the ways people can be sure to get those jobs is to complain about something. <laughs> and then people will say, well, great, you have all these ideas. So next year you're in charge and they mean it very seriously. Um, but 
there was still a leap for you to go from those committees and those um, activities um, to running for office. Yes, I, I, you know, I'd served for years on the library board, as you say, hospice. I volunteer at the local radio station. And this is a town where, you know, everybody does. I mean, my, my husband is on assorted different um, committees or boards as well. My children are um, that live here. Uh, it's, it's part of making a community uh, function is the volunteer efforts. Uh, the difference, I think, is that it's really easy to go before the assembly and advocate for library funding or to keep the swimming pool open or uh, for more you know, flowers in the park. But uh, when you're actually sitting on the assembly, everything is weighed by the costs and the benefits and other issues. You have to always be looking at the, the big picture. And, um, and when that happens, sometimes you have to say, you, no to, to other things. Um, also, it's just the whole structure is very formal. And when you're used to sitting in committee meetings where you're calling everybody by their first name and, you know, you're all sort of friends and, and, and generally will sit around and talk until you have consensus, being in a very formal situation where it's Madam Mayor and Assemblywoman Lindy and and Robert's rules of order and your two minutes or three minutes to speak and then you're cut off and vote and then you're done. And a lot of the votes would sometimes be a tie and, you know, broken by the mayor. So there's half of you are, are very upset with the outcome and half are really pleased. It, it didn't have that same feeling as when one group is all working towards a common goal. <laughs> and that really came across that decisions that have winners and losers ultimately have sort of a losing feeling because if it's not everybody coming together or an acceptance of the outcome, it, it, it weighed on you at least very heavily as a loss then. Yeah. And I think, I think it is happening, you know, everywhere we're seeing that, that, that when you learn how to work the system so that your side can win, even though you know that, a, you know, just about half of, uh, the other side is is really opposed to it, but you make no effort to to have any kind of concession or even understanding of what their concerns are. That just that just creates for kind of like bigger hammer politics, um, and I don't think that's healthy for anybody. I'm not a not a real expert on politics, but I can say in the local level when we start to get into the all or nothing phase of things. Um, it doesn't end well. You know, decisions that are made 3-3 with somebody breaking the tie, whether it's in something I agree with or something I disagree with, that's going to haunt you. That will come back the next election and the next election. And just like you're seeing um, right now, it'll, they'll, it'll be like, well, now it's our turn. You, you took something from us last time. Now we're going to take something from you this time instead of we're all in this together. I think, though, in, in small towns, we're still, we have so many decisions that we have to make where we still understand that we are all in this together. I mean, the streets have to get plowed and, you know, the, the sewer uh, has to be um, treated and, and functioning. Um, the, the fire department has to come. They need a truck that works. Uh, so th those kind of things still unite people who may not necessarily um, speak to each other at a coffee shop. I wonder if you could take us back to when you're 
deciding that you're going to run and your campaign budget and your signs and your manager. I wonder if you could paint that picture for the listeners of what it was actually <laughs> like when you are mounting your campaign. What is involved? Oh, I was so excited. And I tried to capture that in the book. I was just so happy. It was like, oh, this is a great thing. I'm going to be one of those grandmothers that, you know, is just so cool. And my my granddaughters are going to think I'm just terrific. And I, 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 I'm going to run for office on a, you know, community first. We're going to do the things that everybody likes in the community and, and be nice to each other. And it's just going to be terrific. And my friend, Teresa, who's one of my oldest and dearest friends said, Oh, I'll be your campaign manager, Heather. And then she said, you know, we, what do we need to do? I said, we don't need signs, do we? I mean, they're just sort of litter. Oh no, no, you got to have signs just so that you can show people that you're serious. You can't just assume you're going to get elected, you know, because people like you, that would be arrogant. So she, she got me going on trying to, to get the campaign going. But in the meantime, we spent um, about a week out at uh, her cabin in a very isolated little village, uh, not too far from Haynes, um, that you can only get in and out of once a week with the ferry schedule. And they have a, uh, a public bath that's nude. You, you, the, the town has a hot springs and you go in and that's where everybody bathes, men, women, children, and there's different hours uh, for, for different groups of people. And there's not that many people there, like a couple hundred live there. So, um, we, we did a lot of strategizing in the baths and, um, uh, uh in terms of raising money, uh, you know, the whole, the whole thing cost about a thousand dollars between newspaper ads, mainly in the signs. And you, you work for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, um, I, well, I, as I said, I write obituaries, um, which is not really working for the newspaper. Um, it's, I see it as working for the community. I get paid, I, I think it's about $75 an obituary. It may have gone up with the new editor to 100 but I, I'm not sure because they're not that frequent <laughs> um, and the checks are just deposited. But um, I, uh, you know, I write the, the obituaries for the community. In some years, there might be up to 20, sometimes 15. Uh, I don't do all of them. Sometimes a staff member does, or sometimes a family does. That's unusual. But um, so I'm affiliated with the paper, I guess you could say, but it's not enough to even declare income on in terms of uh, campaign finance rules. Um, But there was a connection, obviously. And I'm a journalist. I've also worked with, I guess I, I shouldn't say I'm a journalist. I'm a I'm a commentator and a columnist. I I wrote a column for years for the Anchorage Daily News and uh, then the Alaska Dispatch News and for Women's Day magazine. So, but it's all family and life. You know, it's not, I don't don't think of myself as as a political at all. Um, And uh, anyway, I was tied in though to the newspaper and that ended, uh, ended and began a bunch of the conflicts that, arose on my tenure on the assembly, uh, especially since the other person who was new on the assembly was the uh, former editor and publisher of the Chilcot Valley News, Tom Morford, who's a friend of mine. And Tom and I were the two new people added to the assembly um, during that election in 2016. And would you like to tell us more about Tom? He's quite Plain spoken is my in, my understanding from the from reading the book that he doesn't hold back on his opinions. Um, and can you tell us about how this about this controversy that happened for you? Well, um, Tom is an old school journalist. 
you know, trained in journalism school at um, Marquette, went through, uh, worked for several papers before landing in Haynes and ending up as a reporter and editor and eventually uh, the publisher and owner of the Chilkat Valley News, which he sold um, as he had promised to do when he was elected to the assembly. Um, he, uh, Tom, you know, believes that adage that that the role of journalism is to, um, you know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. And um, he he brought that same um, uh, value system to the assembly. You know, he he had uh, no time for people that he felt were were taking advantage. Uh, he he often liked to be the spokesperson for the little guy. But also he, he, he is very blunt <laughs> and, and um, made for great quotes, but sometimes um, uh, people would get a little bit uh, a- angry with him. Um, the controversy came when uh, Tom and I were both uh, uh, targeted in a recall campaign um, mainly because we, well, I, I think there's all different reasons. I mean, it was definitely a, a way to um, to change the makeup of the assembly. And there was a third assembly member who was an artist, Tresham Gregg, who also was targeted. But the reason given for uh, Tom and I were that um, we exerted undue influence on the chief of police because he had decided to remove the police blotter from the newspaper, which is a, a little section of the paper that uh, catalogs all the police calls each week. You know, uh, there was a bear in somebody's trash on Union Street on, you know, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, there was a bear in somebody's trash on uh, up on Matthias. Um, there was four bear calls on Young Road and um, uh, someone got a speeding ticket on the highway or whatever. Um, and the chief didn't like that in the paper because he thought it kind of diminished maybe some of the work that they did and police blotters in small towns, of course, there's a lot of sometimes funny stuff in them. Um, but we both urged him to keep it in the paper and he said that was coercion. Uh, and even though Tom gave the police department the space in the paper, which is at a premium when you only have eight pages, but uh, that that sort of began the, the downhill slide, <laughs> I think. And is this a once-a-week newspaper? Yes. Yeah. It's typically eight pages, sometimes 12, sometimes uh, 16. It's not printed uh, two weeks of the year over the uh, winter holidays. But other than that, so it's 50. I think there's 50 editions a year. And it's, um, yeah, it's our, it's our newspaper. And it's locally owned and independent. And it's, and it's been published for uh, over 50 years. I used to live on an island and the newspaper came out on Thursdays and we didn't have a police blotter, but we did have the crime report and it was like the most read column yeah. of the whole paper. So well, it's, just, it's I, the same idea as the crime yeah. report. Um, it's just instead of the crimes being prosecuted, it's the calls to the police department. And it's really striking in the book, the difference between when the election happened and when the recall happened. Early on in the book, you take us through the election and you go to cast your vote because you get to vote in this election too. And you're being very mindful of the rules that you can say hello 
but you can't say anything like wish me luck or anything that could be construed in the wrong way. You're being so careful and no one can have a election sign within a certain number of feet. And given the geography of the town, well-meaning people have to take their signs down, even though they don't think they fell within that perimeter. And so there's all this decorum and, and you're casting your vote and, and you kind of take us through your mindset that you're curious in a way about how people are voting just out of natural human curiosity, but not in a personal way of that you're going to take it personally, however anyone votes, that you're very civic minded about this matter. And then it turns out that you are elected. But when the recall happens, they publish the names of who signed the petition. And that section, which comes later in the book, it's so painful for you as you're finding out the names of these people and you're saying that you said this time the people who voted against me had a name. And that that quote of the book really just leapt out at me because in the original part where everybody was going to vote, that was the civic part of the political aspect. And when it was the recall and people had deliberately signing had to deliberately sign the petition, it became the personal part. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I, I think especially because the recall itself was presented, the recall petition itself was presented to many of those people as, oh, you know, it's just so we can vote again. But actually, by law, what they were signing to was that I had committed misconduct in office and hadn't told the truth. And that that cut fairly deeply <laughs> because I, I didn't think that was true. And I think that the recall organizers um, misrepresented that as an idea that, well, it's just so we can vote again. Um, but I also think, yeah, it was interesting in looking back on it. And I, I don't mean to be such a wimp. Sometimes I, I think I am. But I, I also think that, you know, the reason I, I wrote about a lot of this is that when you're when you're vulnerable, that's, that's where uh, relationships happen. And that's where we we meet each other, you know, human to human, heart to heart, um, soul to soul. And so I felt it was important to write about how I felt about that honestly. And I know, you know, intellectually that, uh, well, you're, you know, you run for assembly, you, you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen, all those sort of comments. But when you actually see names of your friends, neighbors, associates that have signed something and who aren't voting for you, um, it it was devastating to me. At the same time, the results of the recall election were the were actually better than the results of the first election. It was a, a solid 60-40 majority for all three of us, um, which by any political standard is great. That's a that's a big win. But I and at the time when that happens, when you just see those statistics, you don't think of, well, who's the other, you know, who's the 40 percent. Um, but in the case of seeing the names, I did. And and again, that that may have some kind of resonance with what's happening now when we wonder, you know, what will happen with this election if it's 60, 40. And we say, well, who who are the names of those other people? They're not, by and large, people that we we don't like. They, they may be our if we knew the names, they 
there might be people that are very close to us that would surprise us. And um, I don't know. I don't know what that means, but I think maybe it means that we need to do better at reaching out to each other before we get to that point. I want to circle back to a word you used when you began answering this question, which was you said you didn't mean to be a wimp. I don't think anybody could read this book and ever have that thought come into their mind. The honesty and the vulnerability that you have here takes bravery. I think for me, if we're going to use the word wimpy, it would be to pretend that that didn't matter, that these people that you knew who had questioned your integrity and your honesty, that that didn't faze you. Because that would be sort of, it would be greatly out of character for you. For the, You open the book. So for listeners who haven't gotten a copy of the book yet, I will tell you, when you open the book, it's around like page four. There is a map of the town with complete directions to Heather's house. I was a bit <laughs> flabbergasted by that. And I mean, even if you make a wrong turn, you can figure out like three or four different ways to get there. You know, you just... If you blow past the market, don't worry. You can keep going down the beach road, make a right. As long as you get, you know, Mud Bay Road, go up Cemetery Hill and there she is. And and I'm thinking, this is the most open, brave thing I've ever seen. Um, and I have a, I mentioned that I used to live on an island and I have a friend who's a novelist there and she's a quite well-known novelist. And I mean, her mailing address is her house. And I, I remember saying to Nancy, doesn't that worry you? And she's like, no, why would it? And I thought, well, I, I think that Heather and Nancy are like kindred spirits. Like, why would that bother her to give a map to her house? Um, but it does really open with this sense of community that you're bringing all of us into this community where everything is interconnected. Yeah. And, and I guess I, it never occurred to me. I mean, anybody could find out once they got to Haynes where I am very easily. It happens when people take a cruise ship or whatever, and then they'll say, oh, I'm coming to Haynes. How do I, how do I reach you? I said, oh, just when you get there, just ask someone on the dock. I'm easy to find. <laughs> and they'll say, what? And it's like, our, I mean, our lumber yard is across the street. Just walk in and say hello to my husband and ask him where I am or, you know, the Henry, who's standing on the dock who works for the harbor, would be able to tell you how to find me, or the odds are one of my grandkids might be going by on a bicycle. So it's not like I could be. It would it would it would be odder if I had a big barricade around my house and pretended I didn't live where I do. Um, uh, where where are you going with this question? Oh, the wimpy part. What I meant was, you know, now like watching politics, I'm so impressed by the women that are just so gutsy and brave and just you know, move right forward. And I, 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 I admire that, uh, greatly. And I, I, um, and it's probably why I, I'm not running for office again, why I didn't do it again, because it's, uh, it's not really, uh, how I'm, I'm built, but I, I do admire, um, people who can work in politics for years and years and just keep striving despite, setback after setback that I'm sure have to be, um, as, as personally painful and, and probably much more than, than the, the smaller, uh, stings and arrows that I got on a, on a, on a local level here in Haines, you know, the people who've worked tirelessly for, you know, social justice and women's issues and, um, you know, for, for the poor and mentally ill, you know, over and over and over again, they, they just get rejected and they just stay in it, you know, and that's, 
that to me is why I, I, I sort of said I was a, a wimp because compared to the bigger picture, uh, my, my angst is, is relatively minor. One of the things that um, you kind of credit to your disposition and your, your take on the world is your, your upbringing. You said your parents were Episcopalian. You were educated in Quaker schools. Your mom was the Spanish teacher and the school principal. Can you talk a bit about being so immersed in those Quaker principles when you were a child? Because they seem to, there's a definite spiritual underpinning to your worldviews, at least my understanding of the book. Is that how you come across? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't, I don't, be, being an Episcopalian and, and then having that Quaker infusion it means that I don't talk about that as much, but uh, certainly uh, my, my moral uh, compass comes from my uh, childhood and my continued um, faith tradition. I, I, I still attend church every Sunday and I'm active in, in our local Episcopal church here. Um, and, and I think, you know, the Quakers taught me uh, that, what the, what Quakers believe is that there is, you know, that of God in every man. There's there's divine in each person, um, and of course the Episcopal um, baptismal vows are, you know, respect the dignity of every human being. And then there's that overriding sense of, you know, that um, we, we need to take care of the poor and those with less, and and and. Um, you know, love, love our neighbors. And so, um, you know, those are, those are things that are very fundamental to my uh, way of being. Not that I, I mean, obviously I, I'm not a saint or anything and I don't always do the right thing, but I try and I'm, I'm well aware of kind of a, a higher (laughs) authority than, than myself and and a way of being in the world. And I'm not interested in, uh, using either, either, I suppose, my, my writing or my voice to add to hate or anger or, or pain. I, I, I want to help. And I think that is sometimes um, challenging when you're in, when you're in politics. I think you showed us a number of those challenges when people were coming right into your house to, talk with you about things and you're still in your pajamas and you tried to set a boundary to one gentleman and say, you know, you have to call first. So he called you and said he was on his way. And you're like, you're trying to talk to the deadline. You're like, no, that's not what I meant. Um, But also when, when people have very different uh, traditions than yours, you're very mindful of that in the book. And it was one thing that I really um, appreciated that that was there, um, that you you were trying to grapple with things like, what is this land really supposed to be named? And who does it really belong to? Um, and you talk about how the town is actually named. Um, and that's a really interesting story that it's named for someone who never actually was there. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, and these are issues that have, I, I really just touched on it because I wrote the book before, obviously, the, the big social uh, awakening, I, I, I guess I'd like to call it, of you know, Black Lives Matter that also reflects back on um, Alaska Natives, particularly here um, in our part of the world. And the idea that, 
it's always bothered me that names, the, the names of the places here, they had names that, and they still do have names that were, were given to them by the first people who, who lived here and who continued to live here. And what happened uh, in Haines, for instance, the town was, the, the town site was named Deshu by the, the Clinket people. Um, depending on the translation, it's, it's roughly, you know, the, the beginning of the trail or the end of the trail. And um, the town ended up being named Haynes after uh, Mrs. F.E. Haynes, who was a, uh, a, the secretary of the Presbyterian Home Missions Board. She wrote the check for um, the mission that became um, our town. And that's always just bugged me. But then there's also other, other names, you know, that are here, like um, uh, that, that we still do use, but that they have a, a meaning that is both, I, I don't know, sometimes it's like metaphorical, but it's also real. Like uh, Yendestucky is the area out at Four Mile um, along the river and where the, the inlet, the tide comes in. And it's, it's called where, you know, the, the translation is the place where things from afar drift ashore. <laughs> and it's where all the driftwood piles up. So I used to think that it was named after sticks, that it was some sort of version of Yenda stickies, <laughs> but it's actually um, not. It's everything that from afar drifts ashore there. And in, in many ways, lots of things from afar have drifted ashore here. So the, the native names mean something. And in many communities now in Alaska, they're going back to those traditional names. And in fact, um, most communities, Haynes hasn't evolved this far yet, but in Anchorage or Juneau or other places still, there's always an acknowledgement of being on traditional lands and an appreciation of the fact that the, the land is owned by the Gilcat Kwan or wh- wherever it is in your, in your area. And that's um, something that I, actually I, I'm going to work harder for now that I'm not on the assembly. As soon as we have a new assembly, I'm actually going to lobby to see if we can get the name of the town changed back to Deshu, which ought to be a, a fun way to get back into politics. You, you mentioned that it's easy to find your house, and you, even if you hadn't put a map in your book, uh, everybody could find you anyway. Um, and you also talk in the book about how you, you host people at your house, and you contrast that to the big house in Long Island where you grew up, that it had plenty of space, but it, it wasn't quite that sort of environment. But this town that you're in now, it's it's just accepted that you'll have people in your home, both in good times and in difficult times. And one of the people that you hosted was a writer, um, and I believe her name is Ernestine Haynes. Hayes. Hayes, thank yes. you. Can you tell us about having her stay with you and, and what her story was? Oh, Ernestine is uh, one of my very favorite people. She's the uh, current Alaska Writer Laureate. Uh, she's a a grandmother. She's in her 70s. She's a Clinket woman. Um, for those of you that haven't read her books and you want to understand the um, a lot more about the, the Clinket tradition and Southeast Alaska, Blonde Indian um, is a, a tremendous book. And her, her second book, The Tao of Raven, is also, I, I really recommend it. But anyway, Ernestine um, grew up in the, in the old native village in, in Juneau and um, was actually placed in, there used to be a children's home or uh, orphanage uh, in Haines called Haines House run by the Presbyterians. She was actually sent here as a teenager 
because her mother was institutionalized with tuberculosis and father was gone and she ran away and ended up uh, running away to California and um, wound up homeless. Uh, and I believe she was 50, 50 and homeless and in a car when she decided to make her way back north. And she did. She ended up in Ketchikan and then in Juneau. And by the time she was 70, she had finished high school, college, and was a professor of English. <laughs> um, and uh, it's a, she's a remarkable person, and it's a remarkable story. And I'm really honored that to consider her a friend of mine. But she stayed with us when uh, she was here uh, giving a talk at the library for um, – uh, when uh, I believe it was Blonde Indian was the Alaska Reads book that we were all reading. And so Ernestine was here and we got a chance to talk about um, a lot of stuff. And I, I like having a friend that I can talk with about, you know, race and privilege and, and the way the world is. And, and Ernestine is that kind of a person for me. In the book, we get a chance to meet some of the people in your town in quite a bit of detail and then others which is the nature of a book. They, they make a quick appearance, but there's the sense for the reader that there's a lot more there. Um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about Evelina? <laughs> yeah, Evelina is one, of, was, is one of the reasons I ran for the assembly. Um, and uh, she's, uh, I, I think of her as elderly, but she's not that much older than I am, but she's wise. It's not like she looks like a little old lady or anything. She's quite fit. She walks everywhere. She doesn't have a car. And, she has a dog and a wagon and she lives uh, within walking distance to our municipal building and um, comes to most of, came to most of the assembly meetings and still, still does. She walks over and she leaves her dog on the porch and comes in and she, um, she's very thoughtful and she's uh, fearless, but uh, kind. And she frequently speaks at assembly meetings. And um, I don't, I don't really know her past. I don't know much about, where she came from or how she got here, but she she spoke quite eloquently when we were uh, discussing a, a harbor project that includes a very large parking lot for, for big trucks. And she asked why it didn't include um, a nice place for her to be able to walk her dog like she does now along the waterfront and how, how come you know municipal projects are only for people who own big trucks and big boats. But she says it like that, like, like she doesn't, like why, why is that? Not not railing at, you know, the, the system, but gee, aren't I as worthy as, as those guys? And, um, I just felt that her voice wasn't heard enough. And I always tried to amplify it when I was on, on the assembly. The other thing she did, which I just love at one of our meetings that we're about ready to, you know, we're in these assembly chambers and it's like packed. There's like 50 people in there and they're all mad about something. And I forget what it is, but we're about to have a public hearing. And, but before that starts, there's the initial public comment that people can comment on anything that isn't on the agenda and it's timed and there's a microphone. And even though it's a small town and we all know each other, you have to stand up and introduce yourself. You know, I'm Evelina Vignola, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, um, uh, Anyway, Evelina got up and she asked if she could please use her three minutes to um, have a, a moment of silence. This goes back to my Quaker childhood. A moment of silence where we all think positive thoughts about one another. And uh, to my astonishment, the mayor said, okay. And we sat there 
in silence, all these people who are about ready to jump at each other's throats over something that I don't even remember anymore, um, which is telling that I remember the silence and the positivity that came from Evelina. And we just sat there while the clock ticked. And I, I, I thought good thoughts. I don't know if everybody else did, but I just thought, you know, good for her. That was probably the best and most memorable public comment that happened in the entire time I was on the assembly. Be interesting if that was instituted in in all assemblies, just even on a trial basis. After a year, they could study it and see um, if it helped uh, create more civil discourse. Um, but that that really struck me as well. As and you also had notes you wrote to yourself about. Uh, <laughs> considering being quiet and about the power of a well-placed silence. Yeah, I would, uh, on the top of my agenda, every time I'd, I'd give myself notes and there was, um, I, I wrote, um, be kind, be brave, be thankful. That was one that I, as a friend, my, my, one of my dear friends, Becky Nash, um, uh, gave that advice to my son when he went off to Australia for a while and he's uh, her godson and, and she's, close friend. And, and of course, their stories are all intertwined with ours in, in all four of my books now. Her family and our family are, are closely linked. Um, and uh, um, I, I also um, would write, you know, uh, gratitude. Um, I would write, um, listen, don't talk, smile, be like Ray. There was a former newspaper editor and assembly person that I admired, and I'd write that down. Um, uh, meet hostility with courtesy. <laughs> These are just things that I would I would just put them on the top of my paper, and then I would look down at them, and when in doubt, um, they, they'd help me. And for listeners, um, it's it's surprising, I guess, to realize that when you got the meeting notes, you said they could be fifty to one hundred and fifty pages long. You get these packets to prepare, and on page one hundred eleven, you said. I sometimes read my packet in the bathtub while drinking a beer. Um, and I thought that was a good mindset to put yourself into, to take on something that was going to be stressful and challenging. But these were really dense packets of, of issues to wade through. And the decisions that you all made in these meetings truly affected everyone in town, even though this is a, a borough. Um, you say it's about the size of Rhode Island, is that right? Yes. And, uh, the overall land size? Uh-huh. The land size is about the size of Rhode Island. Uh, the main population lives within about a, a five-mile radius of kind of downtown. But then there's outlying areas, communities, uh, you know, little areas. They're not really towns or anything, but there's, you know, 20 or 30 people that might live out at Mosquito Lake or Lutac or, you know, along the highway corridor once it got some uh, electrification um, so there's a sort of a rural area and a, and an urban area. Most of it is unpopulated wilderness. Um, but you know, there's transportation issues, there's taxation issues, there's land use issues of all kinds from, you know, mining and timber and what's going on fisheries. Um, but the packets, yeah, the assembly packets, uh, sometimes they could run up to two, 200 pages even, and you'd get them on a Thursday at five o'clock, they'd be published. You'd run to the assembly chambers just before or download it on your iPad. And then the meetings were Tuesdays. So you had just three or four days to go through it all. And each item on the agenda would also have all the supplemental documents that you might want. And um, so it, it took a lot of work. And I used to just take mine, I liked it printed, so that I could read it in the bathtub. And then I'd go over it again, type more notes. Um, 
read my iPad. Um, it's a lot of work. A lot of work goes into serving in, in local office, and it's done by volunteers primarily. I, mean, I think we had a stipend of $100 a meeting or something, maybe 150 for two meetings a month, even though we had about <laughs> 20 meetings a month. <laughs> um, and, and the decisions that are made at the local level are the ones that tend to affect people's lives directly more so than a lot of the hot button state and, and national issues, you know, at taxation or streetlights or um, the library hours or um, even um, some zoning issues become super local. And then, of course, there's all the employees. So there's the the issues of um, compensation and insurance and and how how you pay people, and and so there's there's a lot. Could you briefly, because it sounds like from reading this one particular chapter, I'm referencing that it was quite a lot. Um, could you briefly tell us about the meeting that lasted for three days? <laughs> um, that yeah, the longest meeting in our history was over a. Um, and this sounds kind of in the weeds, but it, it's under it's a it's a conditional use permit for uh, driving um, gravel and rock trucks from a, a, a pit on the hillside through a residential neighborhood down through down Main Street and to the harbor. It's about a two mile, maybe two and a half mile stretch across town. Um, and the planning commission gave a permit to a developer to do that without any conditions on it. And the neighbors conditions meaning, you know, the hours of the day the trucks could operate, the size of the trucks, the speed that they're traveling, the roads that they could use, uh, all of that. Um, they didn't put any conditions and the neighborhood got upset and the assembly heard the appeal and it was uh, epic. <laughs> and um, there were uh, some very hot tempers on all sides. Initially, people divided right down the line to those who support industrial development and those that don't, which wasn't really what it was about. It was just seeing how we could get those trucks through that neighborhood um, in the, with the least impact in the safest way. Um, and it was a big test for me because the owner of the trucking company um, is a dear friend and uh, the uh, godfather of one of my children. And I, I had another one of my daughters who uh, lived on the road that was gonna be impacted with her children and who was opposed to any traffic going through there. And then I also had my book club members live up there. My, as you spoke, my uh, campaign manager, Teresa, uh, you know, so there was a, there was a lot to do and we really um, hammered it out and, and in the end crafted a compromise, but it took hours and hours and hours um, of public testimony of um, adjustments and, and in the end, the assembly voted unanimously for the conditions. And I, I, to me, it, it felt like a big success. And I called that chapter glorious chaos because it was like, wow, this is how you govern. And as you alluded to earlier, the, the really tough part was when we were all done, I turned to one of the neighbors on the street and I, and I said, well, you know, I think we did okay. You know, we were all sort of euphoric, like you get after running a marathon or something just so tired. And, and he said, um, he said, no, um, you know, I'm not happy and you should be ashamed of yourself because one of those, you know, trucks could kill one of your grandchildren or something to that effect. And I, I was just, uh, it just sort of was such a punch to the gut. I, I, I didn't even know what to say. I, I, I just had to leave immediately because of course I'm, 
I adore the driver of the trucks and I adore my grandchildren. I thought, really, is that what you say to somebody who's just put in like days of work to do something for the common good? And that's, that's what it's going to be about. That's what you're going to tell me. I mean, I don't know, even if you think that you, you might not want to voice those kind of thoughts out loud, especially right to somebody's face. Yeah. Wow. It was powerful in the book and it's powerful hearing you talk about it as well, especially because in earlier chapters, you made sure we got to know your granddaughters a little bit. So Mm -hmm. they weren't just an abstract idea of what if these were your grandchildren? Um, It was you actually had us meet your grandchildren. I wonder if you could um, tell us about the Christmas tea party (laughs) that you had for your grandchildren, because I I just love that scene. Well, um, I try every year to, you know, do a little something. I'm not like great at doing all these holiday things, but I try and I, and right in the middle of, um, oh, oh, we had a big old mess. The manager was fired. We were trying to hire a new one. Of course, December in Alaska is dark, dark, dark. We're talking, you know, five hours of daylight a day. And it was sort of that mix of rain and snow that really is not, um, Hallmark Christmas weather. It's just pretty horrendous. And, and um, uh, I, I had the grandchildren over right in the middle of all this turmoil. And I wanted to, to have a, a perfect little Christmas tea. And I, I, I want them to know, you know, where they came from. And, and some of that probably has to do with the fact that I live in a place where the people who are here first know very much where they they come from and they're still here, you know, the native Alaskans. And I, I, I realized the value of that, um, for, for my grandchildren. So, um, I, I have my mother's China and I get that all out and I listen to the Messiah every year at Christmas, even though that's not really a necessarily a, a big Haynes thing. Although our, uh, choir, actually we sang a, a sing-along, um, a community choir Messiah last, uh, Christmas, which, I I hope we can do again someday. Um, And uh, yeah, and I had them all over and I tried to, you know, show them how to have their tea and their little sweets and then listen to the Messiah. And then things just went south really quickly as they always do in my stories. And pretty soon, you know, it was like Jingle Bell Rock. And then there was these, the playroom in our house is upstairs. It was one of the kids' bedrooms. And so I had four I think there were four little granddaughters here between the ages of three and seven and um, pretty much chaos ensued and things crashed and people fell asleep and Sylvia Rose took off her clothes. And that's what, that's what we always call her Sylvia Rose who wears no clothes. And she was uh, crying and on the dog bed and, you know, anyway, it was just one of those happy Christmas moments. It was so authentic. I mean, we all have those family stories of, you know, you remember how it started all great and then someone broke something or someone got stitches, you know, it's just, it's just so um, the human condition that we have these glorious moments that are perfect, but they are the moments and the rest of it is, you know, the stuff. And that's really what the whole book is about. It's about the importance of community and the importance of relationships and the work to create a more just world and how most people have a very different take on how you can do any one of those, let alone all three. I think what we all have in common though, is that we all want that. (laughs) I think we crave it almost. And I think if anything, this, 
the pandemic and the isolation has um, has made that abundantly clear that we need each other, and and we need each other in the good and the bad and the disagreements and the agreements. And we don't just need people that are like us. We need everybody on one level or another. And, um, you know, even thinking about that story now, I'm like, oh, I'm getting a little teary because I, I don't know when I'll be able to have a whole house full of children again. That's, that's not happening um, this winter. And, um, I, and I miss that so very much. And I even, miss going into the assembly chambers with all those grumps with their arms folded glaring at me because, you know, going to an assembly meeting on Zoom just isn't the same. There's, um, there's something missing and that something is um, people, the human connection. And one of the takeaways I took from the book was you talk about the danger of being in an us versus them mentality and you suggest that the solution is that instead of being against something, it's really important to be for something. What is it that you are for? Oh, well, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm for, um, you know, on, on the political level, you know, I'm for public libraries, I'm for public schools, I'm for safe neighborhoods, I'm for everybody having enough to eat and being, having good health care, you know, um, being treated with respect and dignity, all those things. But Mostly, you know, I'm just, I'm for kindness and, and respect and uh, the, the common good, you know, for the, for raising up the, 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 the bottom and how that, that brings us all to a better place. You know, I guess I'm just tired of the, the bad guys and, and the fat cats getting everything. And I think, I don't, I don't think that's, an unusual thing. So yeah, you know, I'm for, I'm for the fish and I'm for clean air and clean water and, and children learning in, in safe schools and everybody getting a fair shake. And I, I honestly, I can't imagine that other people aren't for those things. What do you hope this book sparks? Um, I, I don't know, I guess I, you know, a connection to people in their local government so they pay attention and realize that the issues that are happening at the local level are the ones that are really worth spending some time on and that really will change the world. You know, that you can live in, in, in your own small place or your own small way, you can make a difference and you're probably gonna make a bigger difference than you do with all the tweeting and <laughs> clicks and, and everything else that's involved with, you know, more, um, uh, topical things that are in the news that the stuff that isn't in the national news might end up being more important. So it's worth doing. I think also the importance of kindness, holding your tongue, not being the, um, you know, the, the mean little comment, you know, if you, if you, if you don't want your grandchildren to, to hear it or see it, why would you, why would you say that stuff on social media? any more than you would in a room if they were sitting in the front row. And I, I hope that, I hope people will think about that. And also, um, you know, the ways that we speak to our public officials. I mean, I don't care what side you're on. No one's going to listen to you if you, if you call them names and tell them what an idiot they are before you, (laughs) you put your comments in. It's just, it's just human nature. 
Um, and so it, it really helps if, if, like you say, you think about what you're for and you remind your senator, your congressman or your mayor or your, your local assembly person that this is what I, I'm for and thank them for helping you make that happen. I wish we could have another hour to talk about this book because there's so much more in it. Um, there's issues about global warming and you say you can watch the, you know, the changes of the glacier happening just in the time since you've been there. And there's just so much more that, that when listeners get the copy, their copies of the book that they will find. Um, in the few minutes we have left, would you like to tell us what you are working on now, whether it's more bicycling or ideas for another book or what's, what's up for Heather now? Oh, well, right now, um, actually, my, uh, my, one of my books, uh, Find the Good, is the Alaska Reads book for this year. So I have, in the most immediate, October, November, I have all these Zoom calls to libraries all over the state of Alaska. Um, and that, I'm really looking forward to that, you know, talking to kids in the village of Aniac, you know, four or five of them on a Zoom about finding the good, which is... Um, a challenge at any time, but right now I think really important, not because um, that there aren't bad things in the world, but but precisely because there are. Like we really need to focus at least a, a little bit of our energy a day on on something positive. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I my focus at this moment tends to be on my family. Um, my dad is uh, elderly. Uh, 87, and he's just arrived here uh, for the winter, and my sister and I are figuring that out. Um, and I have a couple of grandchildren that are being homeschooled that I'm trying to help their parents with during the pandemic. So I'm sure stories will come out of it because that's that's what I do. But for the moment, I'm I'm in this uh, kind of the same sort of COVID craziness that everybody else is, and and just hoping to get through the winter. <laughs> Well, those all sound like really important projects, both the Alaska Reads and your dad and the homeschooling help. They all sound important. And I look forward to having you back to talk about the next book. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your book of Bears and Ballots, an Alaskan adventure in small town politics. We've been talking with Heather Lendy. I'm Christina Gessler. You're listening to New Books Network. Please. Join us again.